John 4, verses 1 through 30. This is the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a, set, to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of living, of, of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband, and come here. The woman answered, answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, See a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Good morning, church. It's good to see you this morning. And um, my, if, if this is your first Sunday, I'm so glad that of all the things that you could have done this morning, you chose to be with us here. And I want to thank you for that, for um, blessing us with your presence, and it is my hope uh, that you would feel welcome, that you would feel like part of the, part of the family here. You know, uh, however you got here, for whatever reason you are here this morning, 
Maybe you're just here strictly out of obligation or just simply out of habit. Or maybe you're dragged here by somebody and you don't even really want to be here. Or maybe you're just heartbroken and you need healing. Whatever the reason is, it is my prayer that God speaks to you this morning. That you are encouraged this morning. That you experience the presence and the love of God this morning. Because we gathered together uh, to focus on who Jesus is, what he has done, and the hope and the life that you have in him. So that's my prayer for you this morning. Now, last week, we started a church life mini-series simply titled, Love Your Neighbor, or Love Your Neighbors. Last week's message was titled, You Are a Priest. You know, we talk about the priesthood of all believers. That means that if you are a follower of Jesus, you are a priest. Today's sermon is titled, You Are a Missionary. Did you know that if you are a follower of Jesus, that you are also a missionary? Surprise, you are, and I'll explain. You know, there's a British missionary by the name of Leslie Newbigin, and he went to southern India in the 1950s, and he returned to England 30 years later to retire. Now, when he had left England, the church in Europe and the church here in, in North America had a relationship with society, which has been referred to as Christendom. Now, maybe you've heard that word before, or maybe you didn't. But unfortunately, and by way of explanation, Christendom often meant that one, society's institutions at large would try to Christianize people by stigmatizing non-Christians, and two, the church's role was to get those Christianized people into their church. It was a nice one-two punch, Christendom. Punching people to Jesus. In India, New Begin was part of a church that lived as missionaries in a non-Christian culture. And in a non-Christian culture, they couldn't just process Christianized people. You know why? There weren't any. Now, they would not change the gospel, the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done and the difference that it makes. They would not change the gospel, but they had to change how they communicated the gospel to that culture in order to make it clear so that they can understand it. Now, when Newbegin returned from India in the 1980s, the culture of Europe and the culture of North America had changed. It was fast becoming post Christian. And in a lot of ways, this, uh, the culture was becoming opposed to the gospel. And, and, and in a lot, of way, a lot of ways, it was becoming just as much of a mission field as any other place in the world. But the church in England and North America were in total denial about that. 
And they still ran its ministries, assuming that a stream of Christianized, traditional, moral, conservative people would simply show up in their services, and they kept talking and acting in a way that only traditional, conservative, moral people would understand or be comfortable with. And some churches did do outreach, but it was just a special weekend or a special ministry. They weren't using a missionary's approach for our culture the way that they had done it for other non-Christian cultures. Now here's what I'm getting at. In Fusion Church, our church, we must be a missional church. And we need to be clear about that. What is a missional church? A missional church is a community of believers committed to living as missionaries of grace in a non-Christian culture. That means getting to know your non-Christian neighbors and loving them unconditionally. It means making an effort, a real effort, a sincere effort to become friends first in a natural way. And as a representative of God, you love the world the way God loves the world. And you pray about the best way to respectfully and courageously engage our non-Christian society with the gospel. Does that make sense? Now, God doesn't expect each of us to do that the same way. It'll look different depending on your stage in your life and, or your health or lack of health or your resources or lack thereof. It'll look different for everybody. But as a church, God has called us to work together to engage our non-Christian culture and be a missional church. Jesus lived on mission. That's why you're a Christian, if you are one. It's because Jesus lived on mission. And he's called his church to live on mission. And Jesus shows us, gives us a snapshot of what that looks like here in our story this morning about the woman at the well. And as we look at this story, we're going to um, wrestle with three key questions. And you can follow along with your outline in your bulletin if you wish. The first question is this. It's the why question. Why should we live as missionaries? Well, here's the short answer. One word, and that's barriers. We see four barriers here. And Jesus overcomes these barriers to connect with this Samaritan woman, which leads him to connect with the culture. There's a social barrier. Verse 7, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. See, in that day, Samaritans and Jewish people, they hated each other. And the Samaritans were viewed as an inferior mixed breed. And there's gender barrier. Verse 27, just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. And us today, we're like, what's the big deal? Well, Jewish men didn't talk to Samaritan women. In fact, Samaritan women were viewed as unclean. And there's a moral barrier. Verse 6, it says, it was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. 
This means that she is there at noon in the heat of the day when no one else would be drawing water. Usually women went together for safety reasons and never went out at noon because of the heat. And so what's up with this woman? Well, having multiple husbands was taboo for Samaritans as well. She was a moral outcast. And then fourth, there's religious worldview barrier. The Samaritans here, they combined Judaism with paganism. And they built their own temple. And and to escape Greek persecution, they dedicated the temple to Zeus. And what we see here is Jesus, instead of going around Samaria like most of the Jewish people would do in that, in that society, he cuts through Samaria and he engages a Samaritan woman. Jesus overcomes the barriers, all of these barriers, to bring love and to bring grace and to bring truth and to bring salvation to a people who are despised. Look at verse 27 again. Just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, why are you talking to her? You know why no one said, why are you talking to her? Because they were used to Jesus breaking down barriers. He he was just constantly eating and drinking with tax collectors and prostitutes, and he would reach out constantly and touch lepers, and, and he loved the Samaritans. Totally politically incorrect, not very religious for that culture. And so by now, his disciples, since Jesus was always doing that, his disciples were thinking, man, you know, Jesus is at it again. Now, in our city, in our day, we see all kinds of barriers, don't we? There's so many barriers. There are cultural barriers, language barriers. I mean, in a multicultural city like ours, there are moral barriers, social barriers, especially worldview barriers. God has commissioned you to break down those barriers, not build them up. He has called you to break down those barriers, to minister to, to generously serve, to unconditionally love, to eat and drink with the people that God has placed in your life, to clearly communicate the gospel of grace in word and deed. That's what he's called you to do. Now, Here's the application for us as a church, okay? We want to make sure, we want to plan on on non-Christians being here in our worship services. And we need to ask ourselves in our worship services, are we saying or doing anything that that makes it unnecessarily difficult to invite our non-Christian friends? Did we say or do anything unnecessarily offensive towards non-Christians? Now, here's here's why I say that. There are a lot of Christians uh, act as if the gospel needs help being offensive. It doesn't. It is offensive enough as it is, all on its own. And I've heard so many Christians who, like, would offend somebody, and you approach them about it, and say, well, the gospel's offensive. Well, they never got a chance to be offended by the gospel because you beat the gospel to it. And now they're never going to hear it because they just 
facepalmed you, and I understand why they did. We need to make sure that we're approachable. At the same time, are we saying or doing, um, what is it that we're saying or doing that's right on and makes us confident about welcoming our non-Christian friend? What is it that we're doing or saying that helps and blesses non-Christians and makes the gospel clear and accessible where we can love them because they're going to need it when they're confronted by the truth of the gospel that is offensive to all of us. We want our services to be understandable to non-Christians. We want to speak a common language, avoid pious talk and religious jargon. We want to be careful when using technical uh, theological terms. It doesn't mean that we don't use them, but when we do, we explain them. We don't hide the truth. We clarify the truth. We want to uh, communicate in a way that invites discussion, to communicate not just what we believe, but why, and in a humble way that anticipates and respects their questions and takes objections seriously and and treats them and their doubts with respect and remembers what it was like not to believe. Do you remember what it was like not to believe? Some of us don't because maybe we just grew up in the church but it's difficult to remember what it's like to not believe I mean I barely remember what I had for breakfast this morning right maybe you can't remember why you walked into the garage you're like why am I here or remember your kids names I can't believe I still have a hard time with that one You need to remember what it was like or pray that God helps you remember what it was like when you did not believe. That will help you. It helps break down the barriers to love others and then share the truth of Jesus. Breaking down barriers is an act of love inspired by Jesus himself. This is why you live as a missionary. And that raises the second question. What does living as a missionary look like? Well, our text points to a handful of basics that I'm going to list off quickly here. And the first is rich worship. That's critical. That's critical to be in a missional church. Rich worship. It is a testimony to a watching world when they're trying to figure out what is different about your religion than everybody else. Uh, This is why in verse 23, Jesus said to the woman, the hour is coming, is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. That is a a missional activity, a missional uh, way to, to glorify God to a watching world. Second, it involves vital community life. We need to see that Jesus lived as a missionary in community with his disciples. The Samaritans came to faith in community. Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And third, 
Radical love for neighbors, not just kind of liking your neighbors and not just being polite, but radical love for your neighbors. What's the first thing the woman does after she meets Jesus? She goes and gets her neighbors. And verse 30 says, they went out of the town and were coming to Jesus. Now, Jesus' love for her led her to love her neighbors, and her neighbors responded to this love, and she was able to introduce them to Jesus. And this will look different from person to person, but what we see in this story that applies to all of us is that in her interaction with her neighbors, we see the key basic feature to being a missionary, the key basic feature feature to being a missional church, and that is, fourth, gospel irony. Let me show you what I mean by gospel irony and why it shows that this woman's love for her neighbors is so radical. It says in verse 28, the woman left her water jar, went away into town, and said to the people who knew all about her, come and see a man who told me, this man that I just met, told me all that I have ever done. Now this is gospel irony because after it clicks for her, her heart is filled with both humility and joy. Humility and joy don't usually go together, do they? But it gets people's attention. Here's a woman who was just so ashamed, so ashamed that that she was doing everything that she could to avoid people in her neighborhood. But now she goes to them with humility and joy. We see her joy when she says, guys, you gotta check this out. You gotta meet this man, Jesus. And we see her humility when she says, this man knows all of the stuff that I have ever done. And they wonder, what changed this woman? Why is, we know all about her. Why is she so filled with joy? And then why is she telling us all about it? What changed this woman? They're intrigued, so they want to meet Jesus too. The barriers were obliterated, just like that. Now, whenever we hear how a church, don't worry, I'm not painting with a broad brush here. I want us to think of that there, no, we recognize there are specific situations in which a church or church people have marginalized and excluded people. People like single moms or gay people or maybe the church was silent about the abuse of power and injustice. And usually it's because They leveraged Christian morality without having gospel-changed hearts. And it led to cruelty and hypocrisy. Normally we hear that. Instead of acknowledging the reality of it, we get defensive. I want to invite you to put your defensiveness aside for a moment and acknowledge the reality. There are beautiful exceptions But this reputation has plagued the church, fair or unfair, for centuries, and we cannot be in denial about it. I think it's one reason that the church in Europe and North America has lost 
its privileged place as the authority of public morality. And now the church is marginalized, like the Samaritan woman. So how do we have a positive influence in a non-Christian society where the morality of God is seen as a blessing? It's modeled as a blessing. How do we have a positive influence in non-Christian society? The same way that she did, through gospel irony. So here's the application for us as, as a church. If we see, if you see that Jesus had to die for you because you deserve nothing less than the eternal wrath of God, that will give you humility. And then when you see that he was glad to die for you because he had to punish your sin but didn't want to punish you, so he sent Jesus to take all of your punishment upon himself and pay for everything that you've ever did, past, present, and future, so that you can have a relationship, a close relationship in the presence of God the Father. And that fills you with joy. When you see that, it changes your heart. And then that changes the way you live. And that changes the way that you interact with people who don't believe what you believe or behave the way that you behave or vote the way that you vote. Here's how gospel irony would look like in our church if, if our, all of our hearts were filled with humility and joy with an understanding of our identity as representatives of King Jesus being missionaries of truth and grace. Let me paint a picture for you what that would look like. We would all love and talk positively about our city and about our neighborhood. None of us would exclude people with pious and religious jargon. All of us would speak respectfully and hopefully about people even though we might disagree with their views and their behavior and their politics. And whenever we study the Bible, instead of just going off on theological tangents, we would allow the, the, the truths of Scripture to analyze and shine a light on our heart, and we would admit how we fall short because of the sin in our own heart, and then apply the gospel to our hearts and lives. We will be curious about our culture. About, we'll be curious about the music and the movies and TV and literature, the art and thought of the culture around us, and then we could discuss it with select appreciation, but at the same time, speak God's truth into it with a heart full of love. We'll all demonstrate concern for the poor with our money, purity and respect for the opposite sex, humility towards people of other races and cultures. And we won't have a habit of gossiping about and criticizing other churches. That's what it'll look like. And when we live out this kind of gospel irony, it is then that non-Christian friends are most likely to be invited, most likely to be welcome, most likely to show up, most likely to say, stay and, and explore this spiritual truth that we all desperately need. When this gospel irony is not here, 
then our church will only include Christians for traditional Christianized people. We end up building up barriers instead of tearing them down. This is what living as missionaries of grace looks like. So now, here's the how question. How can we? Well, on our own, we can't. So how did the Samaritan woman do it? Did she have a bunch of training? Did she go to a missionary class? No, she didn't. She drank the truth of the gospel, and Jesus invites you to regularly, constantly drink the truth of the gospel. And how do you do that? We see a couple of things here. Let me walk you through a few verses, and I'll point them out. In verse 13, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus here is talking about spiritual water for spiritual thirst, but she's not interested. She just wants physical water for physical thirst. So in verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. In other words, I'm not spiritually thirsty. That's not my issue. (laughs) In verse 16, Jesus basically says, are you sure? Go call your husband and bring him here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. He doesn't criticize her or condemn her. He simply helps her see her spiritual thirst. Jesus says, you say that you don't have any spiritual thirst, but then why have you hooked up with so many men? You're still not satisfied, and you're not going to be this way. And then suddenly she sees her real thirst. In verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Jesus reveals to her who he really is. He's the Messiah that God's people have been waiting for and longing for since the first promise in Genesis 3. This is the Messiah who, through his words, created the universe and, and sustains it all together, and he shows up to this woman who is despised. So how do we drink the truth of the gospel? Two things. First, Stop drinking from other wells. You don't have to create spiritual thirst. You just have to recognize it. You have to identify it. 
Most of us are in denial about our spiritual thirst, but we all have spiritual thirst. We all have deep longings in our soul, and we're all drinking from some kind of well. And Jesus comes to you and says, your career cannot satisfy your thirst. Your earning potential cannot satisfy your thirst. Your your hobbies, your sports, whatever, cannot satisfy your thirst. Your bank account, your romance, your family is awesome as it is, cannot satisfy your thirst. So first, stop drinking from other wells and expecting to be satisfied. You're putting expectations on things that, can, that they, and they can never live up to that. That ruins you and whatever it is that you're looking to or whoever it is that you're looking to. So stop drinking First, stop drinking from other wells. Second, drink spiritual water by believing and trusting Jesus. <laughs> Jesus says, I am he. I am the only one who can satisfy your deep thirst. And how is that possible? Because first of all, Jesus became thirsty for you. Now, that sounds weird, but let me explain that, okay? The psalmist says, Old Testament here, I am poured out like water. My strength is dried up. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Why the thirst here? What is he talking about? Look how the psalm starts. Verse 1, Old Testament. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Sound familiar? This Old Testament psalm is a picture of Jesus. Centuries later, when he hung on the cross here and cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then Jesus says, I thirst. He experienced the ultimate thirst because he was cut off from God so that you wouldn't be. And so that you could have your spiritual thirst satisfied. Do you, see how, do you see how that leads to gospel irony of both humility and joy? So here's the application for us as a church. The gospel leads us to be missionaries, to be a missional church. The gospel leads us to be preoccupied with how we can work together to love our neighbors with gospel truth and gospel generosity. It looks different, again, for each of us, depending on our circumstances, your stage in life, your health, your job, your gifts, your resources that you may or may not have at the time. But God can, and he will work through you. And you don't have to do it alone. I mean, especially, I mean, there is especially so much potential in a crowded house for you to live as a missionary and to be part of a missionary team that together loves their neighbors. There are many ways to do it, but I'm telling you, there's so much potential in a home group where everybody involved views themselves as on mission. You know, God has called you to live as a missionary in your neighborhood. Pray and ask him, how he wants you to do that. Missionary at your work, pray and ask him how he wants you to do that. 
He wants to work in and through you wherever you are. And you know what? He wants to work in and through you here on Sunday mornings. We are here, you're here not just for you. We are here each for the other. Others will bless you and you will bless other people when you are here. Christians and non-Christians. When you gather with your church family to worship Jesus and you bask in the truth of the gospel and you express your commitment to King Jesus to the rest of the body of Christ and you welcome non-Christians into our community. This is not just for you. It's for you, but not just for you. And here's the last thing I want to encourage you to do. I asked you to do this a couple weeks ago, and I ask you to do it again. I want you to pray, and I want you to ask God to put one person on your heart that you can love unconditionally. One person. Maybe they don't have any Christian friends. Who comes to mind? Somebody that you know that needs to be blessed by the grace and truth of Jesus. Who, who needs to be blessed by the generosity of God. Who doesn't believe in God yet. Who is one person in your life that God deliberately per- in your life for you to love unconditionally. Anybody come to mind? Maybe several? I'm just asking you for one. If you think of more, great. But I'm asking you to think of one. Pray for one. It's easy to even feel like, okay, I take that challenge and then forget about it when you walk out. So, Josh, Pastor Josh Cass has put a card on your seats. And uh, the encouragement is for you to write their first name down. Just their first name, not last name, not their address, not their social security number, right? Just their first name and write it down as a reminder. And then, um, just since it's just first names, so that we can all see that we're all praying for somebody, there's a board out there. We want you to put it up on the board. If you need to use an alias, fine, use an alias if that makes you feel better about it. But I want you to think of one person as a way of embracing your identity as a missionary of God's grace, embracing your identity as a pleading priest, as we talked about last week, who will pray for God's blessings on this person, that they might come to know the blessing of Jesus in a relationship with him. You know, I think if you were sent to India, or if you were sent to Indonesia, or like the Beckus, you were sent to Nigeria, it would be easier for you to remember every day that you are a missionary. It's a little bit more difficult to remember that here, right? But Jesus has given you the power of the gospel. It's the power of God, the good news about who Jesus is and what he's done. And if you believe the gospel... You will be so transformed by God's grace that you will die to self. You'll at least plead with God to help you die to self. And ask Jesus to be enough so that you can die to self.
And then you will sacrifice everything. Acknowledge it all as God's for his service. And then you will live for God and you will live for others. And then you will love God unconditionally and you will love your neighbors unconditionally for God's glory. Amen? Amen. Would you bow your heads with me?